Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 20th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. In the closely watched case of Moriana versus Viking River Cruises, Angie Moriana sued her former employer, Viking River Cruises, in a California state court seeking recovery of civil penalties under the Labor Code Private Attorney General's Act of 2004. This is known by the acronym PAGA, P-A-G-A. She alleged that Viking had failed to provide her with her final wages within 72 hours as required by Sections 101 and 102 of the Labor Code. The complaint also asserted a wide array of other code violations allegedly sustained by other Viking employees, including minimum wage, overtime, meal periods, rest periods, timing of pay, and pay statement violations. But... Moriana's employment contract with Viking contained a mandatory arbitration agreement. So Viking moved to compel arbitration of Moriana's individual PAGA claim and to dismiss her other PAGA claims. Viking argued that the 2018 United States Supreme Court decision in Epic Systems Corporation v. Lewis overruled the California Supreme Court 2014 decision in Iskanian versus CLS Transportation in Los Angeles, in which the California Supreme Court held that an employee's right to bring a PAGA action is unwaivable and that an employment agreement compels the waiver of representative claims under the PAGA is contrary to public policy and unenforceable as a matter of state law. Applying California's Iscognian precedent, the California courts denied Viking's motion, and the Second District Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished opinion. But the United States Supreme Court granted certiorari to decide whether the Federal Arbitration Act, or FAA, preempts the California law on arbitration. In an 8-to-1 decision, it held that the FAA does preempt the California rule and the Iskanian case. The California legislature enacted PAGA to address a perceived deficit in the enforcement of the state's labor code. The primary function of PAGA was to delegate a power to employees to assert the same legal right and interest as state law enforcement agencies but it does not create any private rights or private claims for relief since, as the California courts conceive of it, the state is always the real party in interest in the lawsuit. California precedent also interprets the statute to contain what is effectively a rule of claim joinder. The California rules of claim joinder apply a party to unite multiple claims against an opposing party in a single action. An employee who alleges they were victims of a single violation is entitled to use that violation as a gateway to assert a potentially limitless number of other violations as predicates for liability. At the federal level, the Federal Arbitration Act was enacted in response to judicial hostility to arbitration. 
The FAA's mandate is to enforce arbitration agreements. PAGA provides no mechanism to enable a court to adjudicate non-individual PAGA claims into a separate proceeding. Thus, the Supreme Court of the United States concluded that state law cannot condition the enforceability of an arbitration agreement on the availability of a procedural mechanism. So, the prohibition in Iskanian case on wholesale waivers of PAGA claims is not preempted by the FAA, but Iskanian's rule that PAGA actions cannot be divided into individual and non-individual claims is preempted. So Viking was entitled to compel arbitration of Moriana's individual claim. But when an employee's own dispute is paired away from PAGA action, the employee is no different from a member of the general public, and PAGA does not allow such persons to maintain a suit. As a result, Moriana would lack statutory standing to maintain her non-individual claims in court, and the correct course was to dismiss her remaining claims. And in another federal case involving workers' compensation subrogation, the court ruled that federal court rules shorten the time to file a subrogation complaint in intervention. This case involves the helicopter crash in Calabasas, California, which resulted in the deaths of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, six other passengers, and the pilot. One of the passengers was Christina Mauser, who was in the course and scope of her employment as a basketball coach for Sports Academy, LLC. This employer was insured for workers' compensation benefits by the Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company, who paid funeral and burial costs and death benefits. In addition to the death benefits, the Mauser plaintiffs filed a complaint for damages with the Superior Court of California against various parties they alleged were responsible in tort for the incident. When the United States was named as a defendant in the state action, it removed the case to the federal court system on September 30, 2020. In July 2021, nearly a year later, Hartford filed its motion to intervene in the federal case after tentative settlements had been reached by the parties. The federal court issued its orders approving the settlements of the cases, but denied Hartford's motion to intervene. So Hartford appealed the denial to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. However, this June, Hartford filed its motion to voluntarily dismiss their appeal. On appeal, Hartford had argued that California's Labor Code, Section 3853, specifically provides that a motion to intervene is timely if it is filed at any time before trial on the facts. But in denying the motion to intervene, the trial court, the federal trial court, that is, found that intervention was not appropriate either as a matter of right or permissively. The federal judge cited federal rules of civil procedure that requires that any motion to intervene must be timely. 
Hartford did not explain why they waited until over a year after Mauser plaintiffs filed their action and more than nine months after it was removed to federal court before filing their motion to intervene. Thus, the federal court found that their motion was untimely. The takeaway from this case is to remember that federal court has rigorous rules of practice and procedure and local court rules. Practitioners must keep them in mind on those occasions when litigation takes the takes them into a federal court. And in another case, several workers' compensation insurance carriers prevailed in an alleged claimant data hacking claim filed against them. A putative class action has been filed and prosecuted in various stages of litigation in both state and federal courts since 2015. It was filed against Berkshire Hathaway Homestead Insurance Company, its wholly owned subsidiary Cypress Insurance, Zenith Insurance Company, and the defense law firm of Knox Rickson LLP, among others. The workers' compensation plaintiffs alleged that the defendants illegally hacked confidential information about workers' compensation claimants to use to defend claims pending before the WCAB. Palmdale-based HQSU Signup Services was the centerpiece of the compromised data. HQSU was allegedly paid a pre-negotiated flat fee to provide administrative services for clients unable to come into an attorney's office due to physical, financial, or transportation limitations, and to assist attorneys signing a retainer agreement and filling out an intake packet with personal information. HQSU then uploaded the documents to its allegedly username and password protected website. The alleged hacking of the HQSU files was first suspected during an in-chambers hearing in workers' compensation case pending before presiding judge Paige Levy. The case was being defended by Knox Rickson, when they allegedly revealed that they had an intake packet on the Mr. Casillas, a workers' compensation claimant who was now the lead plaintiff in the class action. Presiding Judge Levy ruled that the packet was attorney-client privileged and ordered it to be returned. Allegedly, the downloading of the documents from HQ signup compromised approximately 32,000 500 intake sheets, in addition to the documents in the Casillas case. The plaintiff's experts have allegedly discovered that the documents were obtained by a directory traversal exploit, which allows access to restricted directories outside of the web server's root directory. On the other hand, Zenith has argued HQSU intake packet materials were obtained using a Google search of the claimant's name and thus were found in the public domain. The 2015 and 2016 class action cases filed in federal district court were not successful for various reasons, including standing to sue in federal court. So in 2017, the litigation proceeded to state court when the plaintiffs filed a complaint for a single cause of action known as trespass to chattels.
In 2019, the trial judge in state court sustained demurs to the state lawsuit and it was dismissed. And the Court of Appeals sustained the dismissal this month in the published case of Casillas versus Berkshire Hathaway. In deciding the appeal, the court relied heavily on the 2003 California Supreme Court case of Intel Corporation versus Hemidi. That case confirmed that the elements of the tort of trespass to chattels must include an injury to the plaintiff's personal property or legal interest therein. The plaintiffs had conceded that the carriers in this case had not damaged the HQSU system, corrupted the files they allegedly copied from the system, or impaired the injured worker's attorney's access to those files. And subsequent cases reviewed on appeal have applied the criteria in the Intel case to instances of alleged hacking similar to what the plaintiffs were alleged to have done in this case. Thus, the Court of Appeal concluded that the appellants failed to allege any actionable injury and sustained the dismissal of their case. Minas Kachumian, M.D., a physician previously practicing in the Los Angeles area, has agreed to pay nearly $9.5 million to resolve allegations that he submitted false claims to Medicare and Medi-Cal for procedures and tests that were never performed. Kachumian's medical corporation reportedly practiced under the name California Medical and Rehabilitation Group, located in Northridge, California. Kachumian pleaded guilty to one count of federal health care fraud, and last month he was sentenced to three years and five months in prison in order to pay $5.4 million in restitution, which is included in the overall civil settlement of his lawsuit of $9.5 million. The civil settlement with Kachumian resolves allegations originally brought in a lawsuit filed by Elise Organisian, and Damon Davies, Kochimian's former medical assistant and former informational technology consultant, under the whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act. The act permits private parties to sue on behalf of the government for false claims for government funds and receive a share of any recovery. In this case, the whistleblowers will receive more than $1.75 million as their share of the recovery. The state of California will receive nearly $631,000 from the settlement amount, double the damages which were incurred by Medi-Cal. Cochumian's payment obligation set forth in the settlement agreement is secured by four real estate properties he owns in Southern California. 47-year-old Gamlet Abramian, who lives in Porter Ranch, was arraigned on federal counts of workers' compensation fraud after a California Department of Insurance investigation revealed he allegedly underreported payroll to save over $210,000 in insurance premiums. Abramian owns or is involved in managing three limousine companies in the Los Angeles area, D&D Limo, Superior Enterprise, and on-time coach executive. 
The California Public Utilities Commission licensing unit noticed that Abramian reported between 5 to 12 drivers, but either did not have a workers' compensation insurance policy or reported zero employees to the insurance company. This triggered an investigation that confirmed he reported zero in employee payroll to the insurance company, allegedly in an attempt to save his premiums. A premium self-surrendered and was arraigned on June 13. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA is proposing an expansion of its workplace violence prevention plan from healthcare employers to most other types of employers in California. Existing Section 3342 of the regulations now require covered employers to develop a Workplace Violence Prevention Plan, or WVPP. The plan must include procedures to identify and evaluate risk factors for workplace violence, correct hazards, prepare for workplace violence emergencies, and respond to and investigate violent incidents. Currently, the regulation only applies to healthcare facilities covered by this standard. However, Cal OSHA recently released a revised draft regulation for workplace violence prevention to apply to general industry, not just healthcare. The process of increasing the scope of the WVPP regulation commenced in 2014 by way of a petition filed on behalf of over 300,000 teachers who work in the state of California, who asked Cal OSHA for the creation of workplace safety standards to reduce injuries in the educational setting. Their petition, 542, was subsequently granted and sent to an industry advisory committee to address workplace violence prevention in all California workplaces, specifically including educational workplaces. This then led to draft proposals that were published in 2014, and now the revised discussion draft published in May 2022. The newest draft proposal adds Section 3343 to these regulations. If adopted, all other employers will be required to establish implement, and maintain an effective workplace violence prevention plan and record information in a violent incident log about every workplace violence incident. Employers shall provide their employees with general awareness training on workplace violence and other details of the regulation and the employer's plan. The division is now seeking input on the revised discussion draft for workplace violence prevention in the general industry. Interested parties are invited to submit written comments to the Cal OSHA Senior Safety Engineer by July 18, 2022. The ideal of a single-payer health insurance system has been discussed at both federal and state levels for years. To date, no state has fully adopted such an approach. However, several jurisdictions are studying the issue and of particular interest to our industry stakeholders are bills that include a reference to workers' compensation.
In 2022, four states considered or are considering single-payer health insurance proposals with a workers' compensation component. The states are California, New York, Kansas, and Rhode Island. In addition, Oregon enacted legislation in 2021 that extended a previously created state task force on universal health care until 2023 and extended the deadline for the task force to submit recommendations to the legislature until September 30, 2022. The recommendations may address whether the single-payer health care program should replace the medical portion of workers' compensation. Single-payer health insurance is an important topic, and all proposals, whether federal or state, raise numerous questions for workers' compensation stakeholders, including what happens to the state workers' compensation system if a state enacts single-payer health insurance legislation and the state decides to incorporate the medical portion of workers' compensation into the new single-payer program. Would the private workers' compensation market continue to write workers' compensation policies to cover the indemnity portion of workers' comp? If so, how would the split in public-private coverage impact the delivery system for injured workers? And how would workers' compensation regulators fit into the new system? Would they continue to have any oversight? And in medical news, over 50% of U.S. physicians are over the age of 50, and one-third will be over the age of 65 in the next decade. 30% of physicians retire between the age of 60 and 65, and more are leaving the profession before retirement age due to job dissatisfaction and burnout. And there are a limited number of residency programs, combined with fewer young people aspiring to careers in medicine, all of which has restricted the number of new physicians. This means that physicians are leaving the profession faster than they can be replaced. The Association of American Medical Colleges projects a shortage of 47,000 to 122,000 physicians by 2032, with urgent care, cardiology, orthopedic surgery, neurology, general surgery, and anesthesiology included within the top 20 specialist shortages. And the healthcare industry has been directly affected by supply chain disruptions for a large variety of products, as well as experiencing an exacerbation of already serious shortages in healthcare professionals. This is resulting in some services equally hard to come by. The ripple effect of supply chain disruptions, along with ongoing price inflation, can make it challenging to keep up with fluctuating scarcity and costs of healthcare goods and services. And there are some notable deficiencies that affect workers' compensation healthcare. A number of solutions should be considered by claim administration agencies. For example, monitoring, measuring, and comparing network provider performance is a good way to fully optimize managed care. Capturizing and analyzing relevant data, such as referral acceptance, turnaround times, formulary adherence, 
is more important than ever to ensure that quality standards are met at the lowest cost possible. Comparing metrics between vendors not only informs current management strategy, but can assist in anticipating future industry trends. Many Cal Fire firefighters told Cal Matters they are fatigued and overwhelmed, describing an epidemic of post-traumatic stress in their fire stations. Fire veterans say they are contemplating leaving the service, which would deplete the agency of their decades of experience. Some of them opened up about their suicidal thoughts, while others already have taken their own lives. This is an unknown number since CAL FIRE does not track suicides. CAL Matters interviews with CAL FIRE firefighters, including many high-ranking battalion chiefs and captains, and mental health experts, paint a picture of a state agency's sluggish response to an urgent and growing crisis. According to the report by CAL Matters, CAL FIRE has an unyielding policy of 21-day shifts and then forced overtime. And staffing is insufficient as firefighters battle thousands of fires year-round, sometimes for 40 days in a row, year after year. The nonstop work and increasing overtime are contributing to on-the-job injuries and post-traumatic stress disorder. And the workers say the workers' comp system is difficult to navigate for firefighters suffering from post-traumatic stress, beginning with skepticism among managers about the legitimacy of their unseen wounds. Work conditions and stress are driving an exodus from the department, which loses invaluable institutional knowledge and field experience. Last year, 10% of CAL FIRE's permanent non-seasonal workforce quit. An administrative claim notice from CAL FIRE's Firefighters Union sent in February to CAL OSHA and the Labor Workforce Development Agency complained about forced overtime, punishing working conditions, little sleep, workplace injuries, and inhuman system of indenture. Calosha rejected their complaint, saying it has no jurisdiction because there is no workplace standards for overtime and it is not illegal for employers to make employees work long hours as long as they are properly compensated. A company called Cerebral Incorporated is a San Francisco-based mental health telemedicine startup that provides access to medication management therapy and counseling for anxiety, depression, insomnia, ADHD, and more. And the company is now under intense scrutiny from a number of oversight organizations and the news media. Congressional investigators are asking the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration what it's doing to oversee mental health startups such as Cerebral, calling the company's business and prescribing practices manipulative and aggressive. The chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform asked the DEA about the startups, which have rapidly expanded 
by offering online consultation with clinicians, as well as prescriptions for drugs such as Adderall and Xanax. His June 6th letter mentions cerebral several times and requests information from the DEA to ensure it is focused on catching bad actors who take advantage of the current permissive regulatory structure. Because of pandemic-era regulatory relaxations, remote prescribing of controlled substances for mental health treatment has been permitted over the last two years. Cerebral, a soft bank group-backed startup, became a leader in the field of remote prescribing for mental health ailments. The firm, which recently ousted its founder, is also being investigated by the federal government for possible violations of the Controlled Substances Act. A cerebral spokesperson said last month that the company is fully cooperating with that investigation. Cerebral launched its company in January of 2020 and quickly became one of the most prominent companies in the budding industry. At first, it prescribed only non-controlled substances such as Lexapro and Prozac. Only after regulators loosened prescribing rules during the pandemic did it begin to prescribe drugs that were more tightly controlled by regulators because of their potential for abuse. After a $300 million investment from SoftBank in 2021, Cerebral is now valued at $4.8 billion. In a March report in Bloomberg Businessweek, former nurse practitioners for the company described a fear that Cerebral was overprescribing the medications. Since then, Cerebral has gone through a variety of changes. In early May, Founder and then Chief Executive Officer announced the company would stop writing prescriptions for controlled services. In a letter dated June 1st, the Federal Trade Commission said it was investigating whether Cerebral engaged in deceptive or unfair practices related to advertising or marketing of mental health services. The letter also directed the company to preserve documents and asked Cerebral to answer dozens of questions related to its business. The FTC seems to be seeking information related to any programs where Cerebral continues to bill customers a subscription fee until the customer cancels. These are also called negative option programs. The company said it has recently undergone an effort to redesign the uh, cancellation process. Cerebral has also announced layoffs with affected employees beginning and being notified by July 1st. A spokesman said the layoffs were part of a decision to double down on quality and restructure operations. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish our daily news podcasts and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. 
Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarron, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.